Verse 1 in our chapter gives us the third of three awakes. The Bible says, awake, awake. And this third awake, as we look at it this morning, is, is taking us into the future. It's taking us 100 years, 170 years after this prophecy is written. This prophecy was given to Isaiah before the Babylonian captivity. Now, the Babylonian captivity, as we've said many times, would occur 100 years after the writing of this prophecy, after it was given to Isaiah. 70 years after that, God's, uh, God's requirement, the chastening upon Judah, would be completed. And after 70 years, the Babylonians, their, their reign would stop, and the Medo-Persians would rise up. And of course, we've read this and studied this earlier, that Cyrus would be the king of Persia, and God would lay on Cyrus's heart the importance of the people of Judah going back to Jerusalem. So as we come here, the awakening is not for God to awaken. We looked at that two weeks ago. There was a prayer where they asked God to awaken, and not, it wasn't that God was asleep. They just said, God, we just need to sense your power and your presence in our life. And then there was another awakening where God's people were called to awaken uh, from their sins and to uh, an awareness of where they were at. But this third awakening is telling God's people, you've been in this place for a long time. You've been here in, in Medo-Persia for, for, for all this time. It's time for you to go back. It's time for you to go back to Jerusalem. It's time for you to get resettled back your land. Now, we have to remember that the people that were there in Jerusalem, excuse me, in Babylon, and now the Medo-Persians have taken rule. It's a different generation. There were just a handful of the older generation that were left. And many of those who, came, who were there now in uh, Medo-Persia that would be going back, where many of them were born in Babylon, and so they really didn't know anything other than was passed down to them by, by mouth, word of mouth about Jerusalem. And they really didn't understand what it was about the temple. And they really didn't understand about the foundations of the Lord. And so because of that, they needed some prompting and they needed some help. And so we notice here in chapter 52, God is calling them to awake. He says, listen, it's time for you to move on. Those people didn't want to move. Some of them had gotten their roots settled there in Babylon. Some of them had their homes there. Some of them established businesses there. Some of them had good careers there. They didn't feel like they wanted to unsettle. They didn't feel like they wanted to get uprooted. They wanted to stay there. But the truth of the matter was, God didn't want them to stay there. Can I tell you this this morning? There, are, there is a place God wants you to be. God doesn't want you stuck. God doesn't want you status quo. God doesn't want you languishing. God doesn't want you living. Somebody help me this morning. God doesn't want you to help you living in sin. God wants to, wants to help you to grow in his faith, to grow in the Lord, that we be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So God wanted his people to move on. He said, you don't belong here in Babylon. You need to get back to Jerusalem. That's the city of peace. That's the city of our God. And God wanted the temple rebuilt. And God wanted his people to reestablish their testimony and live for God. And so he's moving them on there. And in verses 1 to 6, which we don't have time to look at, Verses 1 to 6, he's just giving them words of encouragement. He says things like in verse 1, he says, you know, put on your strength. He says, you know, strengthen yourself. And he says, put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem. And he says, shake yourself from the dust. And that was a phrase that they used when people were mourning. They, they, they would pour dust on their head and ashes and so forth. He says, shake that off. You know, shake off your sorrow. Shake off your sadness. You know, go on for the Lord. And he talked about the fact that, that, uh, that the heathen, those who didn't know the Lord, were blaspheming in the name of God. And he gets to verse 6 and he says... Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day I, that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. And he's talking about, you know, you're going to know my name again. And you're going to know the pleasure of worshiping God in the city of peace. And you're going to know again what it means to honor God. Then he gets to verse 7. And in verses 7 to 13, which is the verse 7 to 12, which is the core of our message this morning. He wants God's people to realize that something good's about to happen in their lives. That even though you've been in captivity, and even though you really don't have an army, you're still the people of God. May I remind you today, we, we were going into a new transition. We've got a new president. 
We've got a whole new Congress of things and, and laws being passed and things and laws already being signed into effect and things being reversed that are going to probably set America backwards in a little bit here and some things that are going to greatly affect us in terms of our, uh, our morals and some things are going to affect us in terms of just belief systems, what people believe. And, and you, you can be someone very pessimistic and think, well, everything's going, going downhill and we're going bad. But I want to remind you, as he told them, he says, oh, listen, there's some good news here. He says, God is not dead. And he says, God is alive and God is on his throne. And he says, God wants you back in his city. He says, so listen, we need some messengers to go out. And he says, how beautiful on the, on the mountains are the feet of them that publish good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, thus that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. He said, you know, you've got a message to tell. There are Jews that are scattered, and there are Jews inside the city that need to know God wants us to go back, that, that, they, that God wants them to know that uh, God, God has something in mind he wants them to do. Hey, can I tell you this morning, it doesn't matter who's the president, and it doesn't matter who the Congress is, and it doesn't matter what happens with the pandemic, whether vaccines work or vaccines fail. One thing is true. God's church, God's people have a great and mighty God, a God who never fails, and a God who's on the throne, and a God who wants his people to keep serving God and honoring the Lord. Listen, this is not a time in a time of a new presidency for us to, to hide our heads in the sand and to be asleep, but to awaken and realize God has a great work he wants to do in the heart of his people. And so we get to verse 8, and their watchmen on the wall Watchmen are looking out across the horizon, towards the horizon. But they're looking across the wall to one another. And he makes this statement in verse 8. He says, thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. Now the cry of the watchman was either danger's coming or there's something out there. We better keep our eyes fixed on it. And he says, with the voice together, and it's important, watchmen must be on the same page. Watchmen must have the same message. With the voice together shall they say, notice this phrase, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Now, they're not back in Zion, but they're going there, amen? They're going to be there. They're going to make over a thousand-mile trek northeast back down to the city of God. And the watchmen, which are many, were called to look eye to eye. But not only eye to eye with each other. Because as we look at this, it's also prophetical. It's also looking at the day when from the eastern skies the Lord Jesus Christ will come with the second coming. Amen? And when he comes, every eye shall see him, the Bible says, Revelation 1-7. Every eye shall see him. And those that pierce him, they shall wail, the Bible says. And he's saying every eye will see the Lord. And when we see the Lord, this is interesting. It says here in verse 8, we will see him eye to eye. Now the phrase eye to eye, seeing eye to eye, we use that kind of a Western, a Western idiom. They're talking about a people seeing the same thing, uh, having the same idea, uh, you know, they, they're thinking and doing the same thing. We basically mean this, that we are in agreement. Uh, we, we don't have any disagreement about this. We see eye to eye. We're totally in agreement about what we see. And the idea here in verse 7 and 8 that God's really giving us today is that he's telling his people that the watchman, which is all of us, as we look to each other, we look to God, as we look at a new year, 
as we look at a new presidency, as we look at the new opportunities, God's people are to see eye to eye. But more than seeing eye to eye with ourselves, which that, that should be apparent. If you're part of a local New Testament church, everybody in the local New Testament church should see eye to eye. Amen? We should see eye to eye about the Bible. We should see eye to eye where we don't have different doctrines and we don't have different beliefs and we don't have different kinds of preaching and we don't have different kinds of philosophy. We see eye to eye about the things of God. We should see eye to eye about exercising faith. We should see eye to eye about having prayer and, and seeing God work through prayer. But he's saying here we must see eye to eye with the Lord. And so he calls upon them. He said, now there's some things as we go through this in verses 7 to 12. There's some things God's people must see eye to eye with the Lord about. I want you to notice this morning the emphasis God gives us today in a time where I don't look at it as, as being a time where there's no opportunity, but a time of opportunity, a time of service, a time of doing all that we can before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. We must see eye to eye with our Lord. First of all, notice verse 12. We must see eye to eye with the Lord concerning the Lord's mercies. We must see eye to eye about the Lord's mercies. Now the people are getting ready to go back. They're about ready to leave Medo-Persia under the command of Cyrus, and they're about to take their goods and whatever they have. And so he tells them in verse 12, for you shall not go out with haste nor by flight. Now what he's saying there is this, unlike you did when you had to leave Egypt, you don't have to leave with haste out of fear of anything. He says, you don't have to leave Medo-Persia we're looking behind your back, wondering if Cyrus is going to send the Persians after you. And you don't have to worry about whether or not there's another threat that's coming down. And the Assyrians are done with. And the Babylonians are done with. And the Medo-Persians are in favor of you. They're not adversary to you. They are allies to you. He says, you don't have to worry about that. You don't need to go by, by, out by haste. You need to go out. And you need to go, you need to go out. But you need to go out in a hurry, worrying about yourself, about your safety, and about your security. He says, notice in verse 12, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your re-reward. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your re-reward. Now, I call this the Lord's mercies because God's mercies are His love. He extends to us, and His grace extends to us, even though we, knowing the fact we don't deserve any of it. Amen? I mean, none of us deserve to be saved. Can I hear an amen about that? None of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to have our sins forgiven. None of us deserve to have the gift of eternal life. We don't deserve any of that. And so as we go on in the Christian life, he's saying, now listen, you're going to go out and you're going to go to this land. And for many of them, they had not been down that pathway before. They had not been. They were born in Babylon. And they grew up there. Now God's telling them to uproot themselves and to leave. And he says, now I want to give you something. He said, I want you to know my mercies are with you. He said, I want you to know that I am with you. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, be with me. Lord, be with them. Can I tell you something? That's a great prayer to pray. But you don't need to pray that. God is with you already. Amen? He says, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. You don't need to pray for God's presence. He promises his presence to be with you. The Bible says, let your, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For the Bible, he says, for I am with thee and will not forsake thee, and that we may boldly say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man will do unto me. God is with you when, whenever you go. But these people have to be reminded, and sometimes we have to be reminded when you're in that surgery room, when you're about to get that blood test, when you're about to you're about to step out in faith on something we need to be reminded every now and then that when we're scared and we're a little bit nervous and jittery about what to do or we're about to we're about to have a test and wondering am i going to test for covid am i going to test for cancer whatever it may be then we have to have this understanding that god is with us and he defines himself in verse 12 is this he says in verse 12 the lord will go before you now he's talking about jehovah god <coughs> he's talking about 
The fact that, that God, the God of the covenant relationship, the Lord will go before you. And he says the God of Israel will, go, will be behind you. And what he's really saying there is something that we capture over there in Joshua chapter, seven, chapter, Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua chapter 6, we get an idea of that. In Joshua 6, God is telling, tells Joshua, here's what you're going to do. You're going to conquer Jericho. But in order to conquer Jericho, he says, for six days, you're going to, you're going to circle around the city of Jericho. And he says, you're going to have a large procession. And in this procession, you'll have the priests who will bear the ark of God. And bearing the ark of God, of course, meant they were bringing the presence of God with them. God was with them. And he said, but as you do so, we're going to have armed men that will go in front of the priests. And then you're going to have what they call the re-reward or the rear guard or the men that go behind them. And if you go back and read chapter 6 of Joshua, here's what it says. And I'll read it to you just to save time. In verses 8 and 9, it says, and it came to pass... When Joshua had spoken unto the people, that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of rams' horns passed on before the Lord, and they blew with the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. Listen to verse 9. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the re-reward, or the rear guard, came after the ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. Now you have to understand, even though they had passed through the Jordan River, And God miraculously opened up the Jordan River. And the Bible describes it as two heaps on one end, from one end northwards and one end southward. It was two heaps of water. And the heathen, the pagan of the land, saw these heaps of water and how God stopped it. And how God dried that overflowing riverbed so that God's people could cross through. They just celebrated that. They just celebrated eating for the very last time the old corn of the land. And they just celebrated the Passover there. And so they saw the great things of God. But there was still some nervousness on their part because the Bible says now they're nearing Jericho. And Jer- Jericho, the Bible describes in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, that the city walls and the gates were shut up. And so the, perhaps in the minds of people, they're wondering, how are we going to go inside? But God wanted them to know for six days that he was with them. But while being with them, he had, this, 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 he had a vanguard in the front and a rear guard in the back. He had this armed guards that we call the vanguard in the front and the rear guards in the back. And so because of that, they went each day for six times around there. And you know what God was doing there? He was embedding in their mind what he would give us now in Isaiah chapter 52. When Isaiah 52, God is saying, you're going back to Jerusalem. You're going forward to a place of opportunity, a place of rebuilding, a place of building up the walls, a place of building the temple of God. And as you go there, God says, listen, you don't have to worry about the enemy of the land, and you don't have to worry about hostilities, and you don't have to worry about your adversities, and you don't have to worry about your adversaries, because he said, you know what? The Lord will go before you, and the Lord, God of Israel, will go behind you. You know what God's saying there? God is in both, he's in two places at one time. God is saying that he's everywhere at all times. God is saying that I'm with you in the most thickest, thickest of situations. God is saying, my presence is with you. My mercies are with you. My presence is with you. God is saying, I'm before you and I'm behind you. Listen to me this morning. Many of us face decisions we have to make. We're facing decisions. Should I, should I change my career? Should I change my job? Am I supposed to move? Things are getting bad. You know, tech companies are moving out of California. Am I supposed to move? Am I supposed to say what I'm supposed to do? And a lot of times, we're not sure what to do, and we get nervous about whether or not God is with us. But the Bible reminds us that the Lord is before you, and the Lord is behind you. Can I tell you something this morning? I may be talking to some couple. God is working your heart. You, you know that God has worked your heart about going to the mission field 
about bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to some foreign field. That, that by the way, the day's going to open up where you can go back on the foreign field, where people can go on the foreign field, and you can take the gospel there, and God will open doors. And maybe you'll stay closed for a period of time, but God will open doors. Listen, if God wants you there, God will make a way. God will open up that red sea and make a way for you. But you're wondering, how am I going to get there? Can I tell you, as you look at verse 7 here, God is telling us this, or verse 13, verse 12, God is saying this, God goes before you, God goes behind you. You face that, fit, that difficult uh, decision, God goes before you, and God goes behind you. The Bible says, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear them. You say that door looks like it's locked. Listen, God goes before you, God goes behind you. You say, where's the church supposed to go? The church is supposed to go forward and not backwards. The church is to open doors. The church is to see opportunities. And as we go out, not sure where to go, the Lord goes before us, and the Lord goes behind us. 22 years ago, Actually, 24 years ago, a small group of people were, be, were praying and asking God to open the door for a church to start. They prayed not knowing what would happen. The day came when God started opening things and making things possible. The day came as we went forward. We started renting space and had rent way over our head and barely had a fledgling group of people. But, you know, for 22 years, Heritage Baptist Church can, can say to the glory of God, the Lord has been before us and the God of Israel has been behind us. He's led us through building programs. He's led us in getting space. He's led us in getting land. He's led us in places. The Lord has been in front of us and the Lord is behind us. You're wondering where you're going to go as far as a family and how are you going to get there and how are you going to raise your children in a school system? Perhaps maybe you're someone you don't feel adequately equipped to homeschool and I hope that you can homeschool. I'm going to hope that you'll take seriously the matter of homeschooling your children because I'm going to tell you right now, the hope in the public schools is not there and I'm going to tell you right now, even the hope in Christian schools is not really there when you consider all this going on with, with, with Christian schools here. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm just saying you've got to take responsibility as a parent for your child's education. You've got to take responsibility for their soul. And by the way, education begins with the soul and the heart, not with the head. You're working on the character of the child, not on the competence of the child. With character because competence. But if you put competence before character, it doesn't guarantee they're going to have character. You know what God tells every family? The Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel is your re-reward. He'll go behind you. There might be a man here today, God's working your heart. We're praying for preachers. You wonder, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to take care of myself? You know, I don't have any skill sets. I'm not sure what to do. Listen, God says God will go before you and God is behind you. He's got your front covered. He's got your back covered. You say, what? What does that mean? God is for you. We have the Lord's mercies. We must see eye to eye. When God calls us to a faith endeavor, when God calls us to step out, when God calls us to do something that's over our head and beyond our capability, that stretches us, God is before us and God is behind us. We must see eye to eye with the Lord and his mercy. But notice, secondly, would you notice verse, um, let's see, verse 10. We must see eye to eye about the Lord's might. Remember, these people are supposed to go back to the, the city where God, the city of Jerusalem, where God wanted them to be. In verse 10, in an encouraging way, God says, actually beginning with verse 9, He says, Break forth into joy. Seem together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. And, and He's helping them to imagine before they get there that, you, you know, when you go back, don't be surprised by what you see. You're going to see, you're going to see walls that have been broken down, gates that have been burned with fire. The temple is no longer there. The foundation has not been raised. I mean, he said, you're going to go back and you're going to see, as, as, as described in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, a people discouraged, a people that are remnant that are there. But he's telling him, you'll see the waste places. He says, now break forth into joy and sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. Listen, for every, every child of God, 
Don't look and see something in terms of how terrible it is. Look at what you see and say how great a God we've got and what God can do. And he says here, he says here, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste place Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Now he talked about in the early verse, he's bought back out his people. And then he said in verse 10, now here's where I want you to notice. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now that's kind of an interesting thought because uh, many times when you read through the, the Old Testament especially, when it talked about making bare a part of the body, it was meant in reference to uh, perhaps immodesty. Like in an earlier passage we saw in Isaiah where it talked about uh, God was saying that, you know, that the Babylon would make bare her, would make bare, he's describing as an immodest woman, that she would make bare her thigh and so forth. It, it was used that reference of t- speaking about immodesty. In, in verse 10, it's not talking about immodesty. It's talking about the fact that in those days, the, the clothing people wore, they were very well covered up. And what we were saying there is that, you know what, many of you have not experienced the mighty hand of God. You've never seen God work in a powerful way. You've never, you've never really seen the strength of the Lord at work in your life. So you say, here's what God's going to do. He said, the Lord's going to roll up his sleeve. And he's going to roll up his sleeve as a, as a man to, to show you how strong he is. And you know what he's talking about there? It's, it's kind of like a, like a bodybuilder that wants to just show off the, the, the hard effort and work of what he's done. And when he rolls up his sleeves and makes bare his arm, that you can see the sinews in his forearms. And you can see the bulging bicep. And you can see the definition on his tricep. And the bulging of the deltoid. And the contour of his shoulder. And you look at that person as he built, as he exercised. You look at him and you say, man, that guy's got to be strong. And man, that is a strong arm, and that's an arm that's worked itself out, and that's an arm that depicts that it's been in the weight room, and it's been lifting some heavy weights, and it's been doing some curls, and it's been doing some presses, and it's been doing some swings, and all those different kinds of exercises that you do to strengthen your arm. And what he's saying to these people, he says, listen, the Lord will make bare his holy arm. It's not talking about God being immodest. It's talking about God saying, God will reveal his might and his strength. And he's saying, we need to see eye to eye about the Lord and strength. Listen, we don't have a God that is inept, and we don't have a God who's impotent, and we don't have a God who's unable, and we don't have a God that's incapable. We have a God that is mighty. We have a God by His own name is called El Shaddai, the Almighty God. We have a God who's called El Gibor, the Mighty God. We have a God who opens red seas, and we have a God who took a barren woman by the name of Sarai, and He blessed her womb, where the Bible says that her womb was as good as dead, and He blessed her womb, and she and Abraham, who where the Bible says their bodies were past dead, they, he, he gave ability and, he, and she was able to conceive and she bore forth the son. She brought forth the son at the age of 90. We have a mighty God. He opens Red Seas. He opens Jordan Rivers. He raises the dead to life. He gives healing to those who need healing. He answers prayer. He, oh, he, he puts back the armies to flight. Out of, out of weakness he makes strong. We have a mighty God. It's a reminder to us that there's nothing too hard for God. That God is more than capable and able of doing what we need. Notice what he says there. The Lord has made bare his holy arms in the eyes of all nation when God opened up the Jordan River and I think that was somewhat in their minds here when he opened up the Jordan River he closed off the opening of the Jordan River in, Re- in Joshua chapter 4 verse 24 and saying that all the earth may know the Lord he said I've opened this Jordan River not just to get you to the other side not just to get you to your promised land but he said I want all of the earth to know there's a mighty God and even as they got into Jericho the people that were on the wall they saw it and the people that were about there they saw it and there were, the word spread throughout all of Jericho and among the heathen 
nations, among all the Canaanite nations, of the mighty God and what he did. And he said our hearts trembled and melted because of what we saw. They said, man, we've been worshiping these pagan gods, these gods that have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear and mouths that cannot speak and hands that cannot move and feet that cannot walk. But we've seen this God who, we, who you cannot see, we, but we've seen his power because they were coming to the realization that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And they came to the realization, this God is all powerful. This is the God who made heaven and earth. This is the God who split the waters open and made dry the seabed so they could walk through. This is a mighty God. This is a God who worked on behalf of Gideon, who told Gideon, your army of 10,000 is too, 30,000 is too big. He said, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, de- you've got to de-size your army. And he de-sized it down to 300. When he got down to 300, he said, now you're ready to serve me. Well, Gideon's looking out there, who's already timid, who's already shy, who's already lacking boldness, who's already lacking courage, a young man that just was always insecure about his ways. And God told him, you're going to face an army of 100,000 Midianites, and you're going to defeat them by the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And he said, Gideon, it can be done because I'm the great and mighty God. God rolled up his sleeve and made bare his arm. God rolled up his sleeve and made bare his arm when it came time for the feeding of the multitude with five little fishes and five little um, loaves and two little fishes. And God, God rolled up his arm, rolled up his sleeve and made bare his arm when he calmed the storm for the disciples, when he calmed the storm in Acts 27 for Paul. God rolled up his sleeve and made bare his arm to Elijah when he was hit with the, the thought, what do I do about this widow's son who's died? And he just instantaneously did what God wanted. He says, give me thy son. And he took her up to the loft that she made for him. He took her to that, took that boy up to the little prayer room, laid him on his bed and started praying over that boy. And three times he prayed and with persistence and pleading the power of God, God raised that boy back to life. God made bare his arm and showed that he's a mighty God, that all the ends of the earth may know his salvation. You know why God raises up churches? You know why churches are important? You know why churches are more important than even government? You know why churches are more important than even schools? You know why churches are more important than all the things we have in society? Because churches are ordained of God. They're set up by the Lord. Jesus Christ said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Listen, church is not an afterthought with God. Church is part of our belief system. It's the church. A church is the church of the living God. It's a pillar and a ground of truth. It's God has established a church to make a difference in society. Government's not going to make a difference by passing more laws, by increasing our taxes, by giving more giveaways, by creating vaccines. All that. Government was never meant to be the solution. The gospel of Jesus Christ was always meant to be the solution. Now, you can believe all the lies that you want, but I remind you today that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. And I remind you this morning that that power that God gave to them, he says, but we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Listen, thank God today, indwelling within every believer is the power of the Lord. And as God is working in your life and my life, God is rolling up his sleeve in your life and mine so he can make bare the holy arm of God so that the ends of the earth may know that there's a God in heaven. We don't want to see God's power so we can say, oh, what a great church we have. We want to see God's power so they can say, what a great God we have. We want God's power to work so they can see that through answers and prayer and God doing the impossible and God establishing things for us, that God is the one who's at work on behalf of the church. But you know, they'd gone 70 years being down in Babylon. They had not seen the might of the Lord. 
God told those witnesses that, those, those witnesses and those, those, those um, watchmen that are on the wall, he says, listen, there comes a time when God's people need to see eye to eye with the Lord about his mercy. God will be before them and God will be behind them. But he said there comes a time when God's people need to see eye to eye with the Lord concerning his might, that we have a great and mighty God. He's not impotent. He's not incapable. Listen, he's more than capable. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's a God that's for us and not against us. He's a God that will never leave us nor forsake us. He's a God that's just as mighty today and tomorrow as he was when we gave us Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. He spoke the word, and the worlds were established. The great and mighty God. I wonder if sometimes if we've compartmentalized God. We put him next to our microwave and think, well, if we push the button, God will work. I wonder if sometimes we compartmentalize God and think that we need to put some jumper cables on God and attach them to electrical AC source so we can jump some power. Listen, God doesn't need all that. God is always the same. God, listen, we need to come to the conviction and realize there's nothing that God cannot do. Let's see eye to eye with the Lord and His might. But you notice something else this morning. Let me see eye to eye with the Lord and His mission. What you notice, verses 7 and 8. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Now they've been given the commission to go back to Jerusalem, the land of Judah. The Lord said, you know what? I need some messengers to go out. Tell the good news. Publish peace. Publish good tidings. Publish salvation. God reigns. Make sure every Jew, go on all the mountains, make sure every Jew knows this message, and knows we're going back to the city. We're going back to build the temple. We're going back to the city of God. And so powerful is verse 7. So powerful is verse 7. It's preaching to us about the Lord's mission. He says, I need preachers out there. I need witnesses out there that will go upon mountains. They'll go into difficult places, places where nobody else will go to, and go to the mountains and so that the word that's preached will echo out, because that's what we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, you know, Paul told the church at Thessalonica, he said, you've done such an effective job at preaching the gospel. He said, for from you sounded forth the word of God. What he meant by that, the word sounded forth, literally it's used two times. It's used there, and I think in Ezekiel chapter 7, where it speaks about, where literally the translation means this, it means that you echo forth. It means that you've shouted so loud that you've produced an echo effect in what you're doing. And it's reverberating. Paul said then, you've done such a good job at Thessalonica at preaching the gospel. He says, you're doing exactly biblically what God wants us to do. So I don't have to go there and do these other regions beyond Achaia and these other regions beyond Macedonia to preach the gospel. He says, you've already done this. 
that you've done exactly what the preacher has told you to do from the Word of God. You're doing exactly what God wants you to do. He says, so he says, listen, he says, now I want you to think with me. He says, these messengers are on the mountain. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them. I mean, going up a mountain is not easy business. And walking across a terrain that's very difficult and telling people about the Lord is not very, very easy. It's very difficult. And he says, listen, you've got to go up there and you've got to get it done. But he's telling us here, this is the Lord's mission. So wonderful is this verse that Paul takes this verse and seizes upon him and talking about the mission, uh, about the mission opportunity and about serving Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they've not believed? And how should they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach except they be sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that publish the gospel of peace. And he's saying here, the Christian responsibility, the believer's responsibility, whether it's COVID or no COVID, whether we're under restrictions or no restrictions, we're still to witness for Jesus Christ, and we're still to tell people about the Lord. Amen? We're still supposed to win souls. That's our mandate. When we were given a mandate by the Lord, we're to, and the, and the starting point in soul winning, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm all for social media and all that, but listen, it doesn't take away from the fact that we, it's, soul winning is footwork. So many means you've got to go door to door. So many means you've got to hit the pavement. So many means you've got to have visibility. You've got to go out there and have face-to-face visit with people. You've got to confront them right where they're at. You've got to meet them where they're at. And even if sometimes they feel a little bit uncomfortable that somebody's at their door and somebody's pressing them for a decision about Jesus Christ. But the Bible says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that publish good tidings. And he says, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good things, that publishes salvation, he says. Years ago, there was a lady by the name of Edith Burns. Edith Burns would probably epitomize a great church member. Paul gave comment and commentary and commendation. Philippians chapter 4, to the women who labored with him in the gospel. I was talking to Brother Lett the other day, and I... And he was sharing with me about a couple of ladies that were in the church there at First Baptist of Bridgeport when he was pastor. He said, Brother Fong, he said, I just, I tell you, I had some ladies in our church that just, and they were incredible soul winners. He, said, he told me this one lady's name, he said, she brought 70 visitors to church while he was there. Just to go get her. Talked about another lady who brought 60 to 60, 65. I mean, just go getters. And this lady, Edith Burns, was. A great soul winner. She'd always begin a conversation this way. She'd go up to somebody who was a prosper and she would say, Hi, my name is Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? The person would respond who's unsaved and to explain to them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. She's had scores of people to Christ. She was good friends with her personal physician. His name was Dr. Will Phillips. And every time she came to Dr. Phillips' office, there would be Edith Burns walking in, scanning the waiting room, pre-COVID days, finding a lady by herself, sitting down with her, reaching to her bag and pulling out a big King James Bible, putting across her lap, and she would, in a very friendly, encouraging way, she would say, hi, I'm Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? 
One day she was in Dr. Phillips' office sharing that, and Dr. Phillips had just walked in. He saw Edith inside the room just sharing the gospel with the lady. His head nurse, Beverly, was about to come and usher in to see Dr. Phillips. Dr. Phillips came with a heavy heart because he had reviewed some blood tests and some other tests that Edith had, and he had a very, a very heavy heart to tell her about the diagnosis. And he told Beverly, he said, Beverly, before you go in there and get Edith, let her finish what she's doing. She said, he said this, I think we're about to have another delivery inside of our waiting room. She led so many people to Christ in the doctor's office. She had finished. She led a lady to Christ, gave her contact information. Call me. I want you to come to our church. Beverly came in. The head nurse came in and says, Edith, Pat, the, the doctor wants to see you. She says, sure. She closed up her Bible, put it in her bag, and walked in. She walked to Dr. Phillips' office. He's sitting behind his desk, and she said, Dr. Phillips? She said, now, she said, what's wrong? Now, she said, now, she had a habit because she was an older lady. She would call him by his first name. She said, now, Will Phillips, why are you looking so sad and down? She said, have you been reading your Bible? Have you been praying? You know, have you been living for God? She said, what's wrong with you? You backslidden? You know? Dr. Phillips says, no, Edith, I'm your doctor. You're the patient. I just reviewed your test results. I have to tell you that you've got cancer. And it's very advanced stages. I don't know how much time you have left. She said, Will Phillips, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Why are you down and discouraged about that? Don't you realize that's good news for me? Don't you realize that just means I'll get to see my Jesus a little bit sooner? Don't you realize I'll get to be reunited with my husband in heaven and my friends have predeceased me and gone to heaven? She said, don't you understand? That's not bad news for me. That's good news. Don't you realize I'll celebrate Easter in heaven? He was taken aback by that. He said, now, Edith, he says, now, I'm going to start you in a regimen of treatments. I'm going to want you to come. He said, like every three weeks or so, I want you to come in and give you shots and things of that nature. And she did that routinely, pretty much for most of that year. Then the year came. Edith's health started to decline. She's feeling the effects of both the treatments as well as the cancer in her body. The doctor's office closed between Christmas and New Year's, so she didn't go in to see him during that time. She had a scheduled appointment on January 4th, and she didn't make it to the office there. And they called and tried to find out where she's at. And she'd remember she had that appointment, and she called them for where she was at. She had checked herself into a hospital. Just feeling very, very bad, having very, very bad just symptoms and things. She said, Dr. Phillips, she said, I don't think you'll be seeing me in the office anymore. She said, I'm here at the hospital. They told me to stay here for a little bit. My blood levels are not where they need to be. I'm feeling very weak and so forth. But, he, but she said, but. Would you help me with one thing? He said, sure, Edith, what can I help you with? He said, would you make sure they put a, a lady next to me that I can talk to about Jesus? He said, I'll do that. And they'd bring a woman in who's very sick, and she'd introduce herself in a weakened state. She'd say, I'm Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? She'd lead a lady to Christ. I mean, it just went on for a long period of time. Within a matter of days, on that floor, Everyone knew who Edith Burns was. The nurses knew who she was. Attendants knew who she was. The, the doctors who were on different shifts knew who she, they, who she was. And even to the fact that they all knew that her line would be, she, did you walk into her room and she'd say, Hi, I'm Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? They nicknamed her Edith Easter. One nurse in particular, her name was Phyllis Cross, head nurse of one of the shifts, 
did not take very well to Edith. Phyllis Cross had three failed marriages, a lot, a lot of trouble in her life, very bitter. And she just considered, I mean, by her own words, she said, Edith Burns is a religious nut to me. The day finally came when Phyllis came in to introduce herself, and Edith said, yes, I know who you are. I've been praying for all the nurses on every shift. I've asked for their names. She said, I've been waiting for you to come in, Phyllis. She said, Phyllis, God loves you. I love you. She says, I sure want you to come in one day and let me talk to you about the Lord. And Phyllis said, you're not going to talk about the Lord. She says, as far as I'm concerned, you can keep that to yourself. She said, Phyllis, she says, I told God, I was praying to God. I said, God, don't let me die until I let Phyllis Cross know about you. And Phyllis Cross, in a very curt way, in a very mean way, said, you know what? Then that means you're probably going to live for a long time because she says, I don't plan to come in here to listen to you. Well, that was in January. February goes by. March goes by. Edith is in and out of the hospital, more in the hospital than out. And she's in there for an extended period of time from March going to early April. It was a Wednesday. Phyllis Cross that morning woke up. And in her mind, she felt this, I need to talk to Edith. I need to talk to Edith. Like a magnet pulling her, she felt like she was being pulled into Edith Byrne's womb. She came in early that morning. Edith was sitting up with her big black Bible on her lap. And she said, oh, Phyllis, so good to see you. She said, Edith, I have a question for you. I've been watching for two and a half months. I've been listening to you, even from the hallways. Everybody who's come in here, every patient's come here, and every nurse has come here, you've asked them the question. You said this to them. You said, I'm Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? She said, I just realized this week you never asked a question. Edith, why is it you've never asked me if I believe in Easter? Edith Burns said, because as I was praying for you, the Lord told me not to bring it up unless you brought it up. And she said, now that you brought it up, I want to tell you about Easter. And she took her King James Bible and started witnessing to Phyllis Cross and told her about how Jesus Christ died for her sins when he was buried and rose again from the dead. He talked about the, the, the shed, she talked about the shed blood of Jesus Christ and covering all of our sins. And Phyllis Cross, as she's, the more she listened to Edith Burns, the Holy Spirit was working in her heart. She just needed time for God to work in her heart. And Edith came to her with that million-dollar question we ask every person who's not saved. She says, she says, wouldn't you like to receive Jesus, your Savior? Wouldn't you like to have your sins forgiven? Wouldn't you like to make sure you're going to heaven? And Phyllis just kind of broke down at that moment. Tears coming down her face. She said, yes, I want to accept Jesus Christ. I want to be saved today. During that Wednesday afternoon, Edith Burns led Phyllis Cross to saving knowledge of God's son, Jesus Christ. Friday came. It was Good Friday, as they would call it. And she came in. She said, hey, Edith, it's Good Friday. She says, no, it's better than Good Friday. She says, it's Easter Friday. She says, Jesus is not in the tomb. He's risen from the dead. She said, Phyllis, I'm praying for you. God will use you greatly. Sunday morning came. It was Easter Sunday. Phyllis thought, you know, <clears throat> I'm on shift. Go down to a flower store. Bought some beautiful Easter lilies. She said, I'm going to cheer Edith up. I'm going to bring these Easter lilies in. She loves talking about Easter. And as she entered the room with these beautiful Easter lilies, she noticed Edith sitting up in her bed, her head bowed, her Bible open, her hands in two places. Her left hand was in John chapter 14. In my father's house are many mansions. 
And I go there to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may be also. Her finger literally is on that verse. Her other hand was in Revelation 21, where it says, And God shall wipe away all tears. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, all that. Phyllis took a look as she was talking to Edith. She realized that Edith had passed from this life into the arms of her Savior, into a place of eternity. That mansion Jesus began building for her was finished for her. She entered that place and was there. Phyllis was so overcome by that. She looked up to heaven with tears coming down her eyes. She says, Lord, thank you for sending Phyllis, uh, Edith Burns into my life. Happy Easter, Edith. She got herself composed because she was weeping, crying, thinking about how much of an impact Edith Burns had on her life and many others. She saw some tracks on the table, took those tracks, walked out back outside to the nursing station. There in that nursing station were two student nurses that she was supervising. They had really not made each, made each other's acquaintance. She went to those two nurses, and she said this, Hi, I'm Phyllis Cross. Do you believe in Easter? You see, this morning, the Bible speaks about beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that publish good tidings, that bring good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that the, all the earth may know that the salvation is of the Lord. Are you doing God's mission? Are you trying to win souls? Are you trying to invite people to church? Give them to the Lord. One last thing, we're done. I need to finish very quickly. We need to see eye to eye about the Lord's mission. And we need to see eye to eye about the Lord's mercies. And we need to see eye to eye about the Lord's might. As we close, would you notice this one last thought? In verse 11, we need to see eye to eye as the Lord's ministers. He says, Depart ye... Depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. Now here's my parting thought I want to give you. One of the reasons why they went into captivity is they took a lackadaisical and negligent view of serving God. Whenever the priest would serve the Lord, if you go back to the, the day of the tabernacle, God had a laver there. It was a basin filled with water, clean water. And before the priest would go into the tabernacle to serve the Lord, he would stop there and wash his hands and wash his feet because there was no way you would enter into there with dirty hands and dirty feet in serving God. But the ministers of God, the servants of the Lord, the priests especially, and the prophets were serving God with an unclean heart, symbolized by dirty hands and dirty feet. And so God is telling now listen, you're going back to Jerusalem, and you're going to reestablish the temple, and you're going to reestablish the temple service, and you're going to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says, listen, you need to be a separated believer. You need to be separated personally from the world and the contaminants of the world. And he says here in verse 11, he says, touch no unclean thing, Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. And the parting thought God gives us this morning is this, that we as servants of God should not approach serving God with dirty hands and dirty feet, but that our hands and our heart and our feet and our lives are purified by the Lord. And realizing even as Jesus washed the feet of disciples, he said, if you don't let me wash you, you shall have no part with me. You'll have no fellowship with me. Listen, this is what the Bible says. The foundation of the Lord standeth sure. For the Lord knoweth them that are his. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
But also in a great house are vessels of gold and of silver and of wood and of earth and some of honor, some of dishonor. And if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in me for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Listen, we are not qualified to serve God with dirty hands and dirty feet and dirty minds and dirty mouths and dirty hearts. Listen, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in me for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. And he tells us to flee youthful lusts. If after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, to them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We must be on the same page with our Lord. We must see eye to eye with our Lord. We must see eye to eye with the fact that the Lord's mercies, that God goes before us and God is behind us. We must see eye to eye with the Lord, that he makes bare his holy heart, that the Lord is mighty and the Lord who led us will continue to lead us. And we must see eye to eye with our Lord concerning the mission of Jesus Christ, that we must proclaim the gospel and we must get the gospel as much as we can. We must be diligent about the message of the gospel, but we must see eye to eye with the Lord concerning his ministers. We are his ministers to be clean and holy before God. Are you witnessing? Are you doubting God's presence? Are you claiming his presence? Are you claiming his power? Are you claiming his might? Do you see that the Lord has rolled up his sleeve and has made bare his holy arm so you can serve him? Your service for God with the right motive? Your service for God with the clean hands and clean feet and a clean life? And I would challenge you this morning to see eye to eye with our Lord. Realize the greatest days of opportunities are ahead for us as we try to serve our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.